0: Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge.
1: In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and write into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic.
0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Arlington Cities Bookshelf Podcast. My name is Romain Schiffer.
1: And my name is Luba Timoeno.
0: And we're back for the third series. Isn't it good to be back, Luba? It's been a while.
1: Yes, it's it's extremely exciting to be honest, and it's so wonderful that we could have some amazing guests. And today we're having Karina Röver with us, my dear colleague from the KTH Royal Institute of Technology and a freshly baked doctor of philosophy, <laughs> who recently defended her thesis titled Making Reindeer, Negotiation of an Arctic Animal in Modern Swedish Submy. Welcome, Karina. Nice having you here. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So, as the first question, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, where you're based, so that our listeners can have a glimpse into your life and who you are? Yes, okay.
2: Um, So, for the past uh, actually six years, I have been a PhD student at uh, KTH, at the Division of History of uh, Science, Technology and Environment. And I have uh, taught and uh, done research uh, for my thesis. I have also been on parental leave during that period. And uh, yeah, last June, I defended my, my thesis that you just introduced. And now since the mid, uh, since mid August, I am a visiting postdoc researcher at the University of Oulu in
1: Finland. Hey, thanks. This is really exciting to hear that let's uh, jump right into your work and your fascinating topic and i would like you to um, tell us a little bit more about how you actually came to this topic why did you choose reindeer and why did you want to uh tap into the history of the reindeer
2: um so that was that was not a straightforward process. Uh. I wrote my master thesis about security concerns in the Arctic and I looked at Sweden and Norway and then decided that I wanted to pursue um, research with uh, with an Arctic focus, but wasn't quite sure exactly what my topic or my major research question would be. But I what I always found fascinating is um, the idea of Arcticness and what Arcticness means to different people. And um, then I actually planned to um, start working as a PhD student in Durham and was already uh, preparing a proposal with researchers there. And then the call from KTH come, came up, and I emailed um, the person that later became my supervisor, Sveker Selin, and um, had a you know short conversation via email with him. And this is how I um, started to approach um, the reindeer as my focal point in my research, because I think the, the reindeer really is such a strong symbol for Arcticness. It is so strongly associated with something that people um, connect to the north and to the Arctic. It is, it is like an iconic animal for, for the Arctic. Um, so I think that that was a really helpful entry point for me. Um, but at the point when I started my PhD studies, I was not an expert in reindeer husbandry or in the reindeer. And obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but I'm not a reindeer herder myself. I'm not a Sami person. So I don't have this, um, this wealth of experience and knowledge that Sami reindeer herding people have. So I'm, I was extremely intrigued and fascinated. But also intimidated by my own lack of knowledge
0: one one key aspect of your thesis is obviously it's multidisciplinarity, and obviously, like when you read your thesis, it's obviously like something from environmental history or rooted in at least environmental history. And akin to we were talking about uh, this with Luba, but very keen to what Basheba Demuth did with the floating coast, for example, or like looking at, at like the the historical relation uh, with the reindeer, but not only from a human perspective, but also from a reindeer perspective. And I was just wondering whether this multidisciplinary approach in your thesis was. Intended whether you intended to be multidisciplinary from the get go, or whether the topic itself prompted you towards multidisciplinarity and, and towards like having looks from historical, political, uh, even legal and anthropological, social aspects of, of what the reindeer means in Swedish something.
2: Yeah, I think this is something that um, happened during the research process for me, it wasn't even so crystal clear that the focus would be the reindeer because you could also have reindeer husbandry as practice as a focus and that would then be a different thesis. And for me, um, I found that the reindeer provokes such a wide range of uh, reactions and responses Um from and also emotions and desires. Um, there's this, um, this wish, for example, of reindeer herders, but also uh, policymakers to protect it um, and to preserve it. And then later, there came also a desire to improve it and make it better and change and adapt it to what humans wanted out of it to get out of the reindeer. But it also sparks a lot of negative emotions for some groups of people. It also sparks hatred. Um, the reindeer is also killed uh, out of hatred um, to the reindeer itself or also as a projection of Sami culture. So there's a lot of um, reactions prompted by the presence of a reindeer in, in, in a certain region. And when I started the research I tapped into all these different, as you say, into these different disciplines and kinds of archival and other material. Um, So it was a bit of a snowballing process maybe, but also a constant process of refining my research focus and questions. Um, Because I think many PhD students might agree that when you start out your research process or your project, you have a plan, but of course, the plan has to adjust all the time. And also, um, I think there's nobody who has this grand master plan in the beginning and just follows it through. But it is always new input, new ideas, new feedback coming in that makes you adjust your uh, your approach and your questions. And this is what, what happened to me, really. And this is also how um, the different disciplines and the different perspectives came in, because you can't um, write or, or try to understand the earlier history of how reindeer husbandry re in, in the Swedish part of Sápmi was governed without also reading about, um, well, all the legal aspects of it. And I'm not a legal scholar, so my, my knowledge of that is still very limited. But, I mean, it was still necessary to tap into that to try
1: and broaden my own understanding. I wonder then, where did you start uh, how did you find the sources? How did it develop? And Because you, you have a very um, interesting uh, mix of understandings of reindeer. Like a reindeer is a trespasser. Reindeer as meat, of course. Reindeer as the um, toxic element that is still there, right? Uh, how did you find all these uh, different manifestations of reindeers? Um, so...
2: I think I had a really broad idea when I started uh, and I didn't have this detailed master plan of uh, I'm going to write four articles. Article one is about this and two is about this and th- so on. Um, so I started to really, um, yeah, snowball and just try to find an entry point into the empirical material. Um, or Well, first I read a lot uh, secondary literature, which at some point... Um, really made me feel a bit lost because there is so much and if you don't have your own defined research question you can easily get lost in this wealth of knowledge from others so I decided I needed to start my own empirical research even though I wasn't exactly sure where I was heading Um, so um a little bit by chance maybe or because I um I looked at I wanted to look at um the relationship between the reindeer and resource exploitation in Swedish SAPMI because I was part of a research project that looked at different land use sectors in the European Arctic, um, the MISTRA Arctic Sustainable Development Project. And this project was all about resource use. And so this shaped my my, um, initial outlook. And so that was shaped by questions of how does reindeer husbandry relate to other resource users, but also what if you understand reindeer husbandry as a resource producer itself? What if you understand the reindeer as a resource? So that was my my starting point. And then I stumbled upon this book from the mid-1960s called Economic Reindeer Husbandry, which um, communicated a very specific idea of what the reindeer is supposed to be and how it is supposed to be useful for people. Uh, Because in the 1960s, there was this idea of making reindeer husbandry in in Swedish submi more modern and more economic and more profitable for its practitioners because their income, their yearly income, was deemed to be way too low. And um, there was this optimistic outlook in in all of uh, the Swedish um, Policies, I think, at the time, that if only everything is modernized and be made more efficient, it will it will contribute to the Swedish welfare state in positive ways, and this also applied to to reindeer husbandry. So, what is now chapter uh, I think four and five in my thesis? That was actually the first chapters that I wrote. So I didn't write the chapters in 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 the order that they appear now, and then. Um, Looking at archival material in, in, in one archive, I, I just jotted down, I just noted down uh, reindeer trespasser at some point, because I read all these complaints about farmers in northern Sweden who wrote to the county administration, there's a reindeer in my potato field again, or um, there's, there's reindeer where they're not supposed to be, and we want them to be gone, we want them to be away, to go away. Um but I didn't do much with this idea at the time. And then I I, um, talked to my supervisors about the idea and yeah, that's all interesting. But somehow it took another one and a half years until I really started to look at the reindeer trespasser. So the idea has been around for a while by then. Yeah. And then this just evolved. And in this idea of, Uh, I could look at different approaches or different meanings of the reindeer and how this meaning has changed. And this is then how, for example, um, the repercussions of the Chernobyl accident came in. And I also write about reindeer as as food and as a means to assert food sovereignty and thereby also um, land, well, questions of, of sovereignty over indigenous Sami land, for example. And this came about by me one, uh, just uh, strolling into a, a, a session at, I think it was um, the ICAS conference in 2017. And I, I saw something in the program about um, indigenous food production and, and food sovereignty, and I, I didn't know much about it. And I just walked into the session to sit down and listen and found it so interesting and so inspiring that I, Um, that I included that into my research. So it was really not, this was not, the the way the thesis looks now was not what I set out to do in 2015, but it was a a long process. And yeah.
0: Perhaps just to make it uh, a bit clearer to our listeners, uh, what is your methodological home or your disciplinary home so what is your point of departure within academia to look at to look at those at at this topic
2: um i'm a bit of a disciplinary mess i guess i started being trained as a historian in my bachelor's uh, studies and then i studied international relations and global studies in my master's and that also included history and then i work a lot with discourse analysis, but I also drew in other ideas and approaches in, into my thesis, uh, among others, the, the idea of, um, the, the reindeer multiple leaning on Anne-Marie concept of the body multiple. Um, so I look at the reindeer and how it has been an, enacted as different versions of a reindeer in different contexts and different times. So it's, um, it's a mix of methods and also I, my background is, is not just one discipline, but a bit of several
1: different things. Thank you so much. I really loved your, um, your idea of uh, being a multidisciplinary mess. I think, <laughs> I think it can actually relate to many of us and many of our listeners who are, of course, struggling to find new ways of writing to find new ways of thinking about certain aspects and their topics especially and this is also why i'm so grateful for your insights into your research process and for us uh, both for me and roman as phd still pgd students it's very helpful <laughs> and i hope that it will be helpful for for others as well just to know that uh, you can actually play around with uh, with ideas and you don't need to be Perhaps that's stressed about how you go around that,
0: and, and not only that you can, but you have to. It, it also brings so much depth to to your own research, and I mean to your thesis, Karina, but also to to other to other work to just bring to not try and make sense of the mess, but use the mess as a force that drives your research. As well, which I think it's I mean it's important.
2: Yes, but I also think it depends a lot on where where you stand when you start your PhD studies. Because if you have worked on something specific in doing your master's and you pursue and you continue that, uh, that's, of course, a completely different point of departure. And then you could probably be much more specific and maybe have a more detailed plan. And then there's also just different preferences and different modes of working for people And I think for some, my way of working with my thesis would have been too chaotic or too too open. And if a PhD student needs more structure, I also know of some of my former colleagues have really had a much more detailed plan um, for specific research articles. And this has worked well for them. So there's not this one way. And it doesn't mean that you have to be really open or, or, or um, you know, apply this uh, snowballing method or anything that can be, it can also be a much more structured process, of course, and that really depends on what works for the individual.
1: Thanks. I wonder if we would just uh, return uh, for a little while to this, um, the, this myriad of ideas about reindeers and how they intertwine you know uh, you mentioned that you uh, were really keen to see reindeer husbandry as an important element in the resource extraction process and i wonder whether you would develop these ideas further whether you see that there is any kind of relevance to to all the things going on in the political and the social realm
2: um, this, this argument that it has been a resource producer has been all along, has been there. But um, I think over time, what, what counts as a resource has also changed and, and what this resor- resource should look like. Um, for example, in the 1960s, reindeer meat was supposed to be as similar to Swedish other, other sorts of produced uh, Swedish meat as possible. It should have, um, for example, it should not have Sami names uh, of, of the different body parts. It was supposed to have Swedish names so Swedish consumers can recognize it and buy it because if it looks too different to what Swedish consumers are used to, it will probably not be bought. And the, the most important goal was to get access to new consumer groups Swedish consumer groups, because Sami consumer groups were already there; they were using reindeer meat and knew how to how to use it and how to prepare it. But um, to ag- to get access to new consumer groups and Swedish ones, it was supposed to look as Swedish and sound as Swedish and taste as Swedish as possible. Um, and now, with you know the slow food Subme initiative, this is completely different because now um, it is valued that it is a Sámi product. It has, and these Sámi products have Sámi names. And um, for example, Gurpi or Suovas. Um, and the, the way it is uh, prepared, for example, through traditional methods as, such as smoking or salting, um, this has really been revitalized uh, in the past few years or decades. In the 60s and 70s, uh, reindeer meat was frozen. That was the modern Western way of preserving meat. You freeze it. And, you know, f- freezers uh, became a normal thing in, in Swedish households only from the 1960s and onwards. And that was the most modern f- and desirable thi- uh, way of, of uh, yeah, uh, conserving food in general. And today, Um, For example, Slow Food Sápmi, which is an organization that is closely uh, associated with the National Association of Swedish Sami. They work together to make Sami culture visible also through food and through food culture, because that is, of, of course, an important part of Sami culture. Food is an important part of any culture that you can imagine. And so the resource here, I mean, reindeer meat is a resource. But you could also understand the reindeer being in the landscape as a resource, because that plays an important role for biodiversity. And yeah, I mean the, the reindeer is an important part of of uh, of the landscape in in northern Sweden. So it doesn't have just to be the reindeer product that you that you get out of a of a of an animal once you have killed it, but it is also the living animal in the environment. So I think, and this is an understanding of, um, of the reindeer that maybe wasn't so prevalent 50 or 60 years ago, but now as we face the climate crisis and we are so aware of environmental change, this has um, gained a completely new relevance and importance, I think, in the awareness of, of people.
0: That's fascinating and I think I'm um, I'm like trying to type this mentally from the reindeer being a resource as you just explained to the reindeer as a symbol of sovereignty as you as you describe it as well. So from this resource to something that can promote, so to say, to use a broad term Sami culture and that leads to more sovereignty. And I think what's well we what was interested uh, in, in in your research is that there's almost this aspect of the reindeer being a destabilizer of of borders and of of state of of, of the notion of state because it travels from uh, from Sweden to grazing pastures in in Norway and so the reindeer as this promoter of of Sami sovereignty from a very how I would understand sovereignty in a very legal sense, but also as a destabilizer of um, yeah, of the state, of the Swedish state itself. And I just wanted to pick your brain on, on this as well, just to, to see what you thought on this.
2: Um, I think that's a very interesting question because um, this, this mobility of the reindeer, of course, challenges this idea of contained nation states with each having their own jurisdiction, because obviously um, the reindeer's mobility forced the states to somehow work around this. And this is why um, there's the what is what is called the lapkodosil, which is of course a word that would not be termed in the same way today, but this term was coined in the mid uh, 18th century, um so in I think it was seventeen fifty one there there's there has been uh, or an agreement was made between uh Norway and Sweden allowing for uh reindeer herders to to uh cross the borders with their reindeer and for centuries um these accommodations have been necessary and I think what this shows is that yes in a way um the reindeer was a destabilizer of these notions of of of, of borders, but it was also um, still valued and made space for because these accommodations were made. And of course, they have their their shortcomings, and it's 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 really hard to do this perfectly. But it was still this mobility was still allowed and 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 uh, made made possible. Um, but at the same time, of course, this is also an effort of the state to regulate these movements. And especially when the, when a new uh, reindeer grazing convention was decided upon in the 19, in in 1919 between Norway and Sweden. Um, the documents are really an example of to what lengths the states went to still have control about this, what you call a destabilizing element, because um, this, these legal documents stipulate exactly uh, how many reindeer are are allowed to cross the border, where and when and how many people can accompany the reindeer and when are they allowed to enter and when do they have to go back to Sweden and in the greatest detail that um, made it really hard for reindeer herders in, in practice to uh, to comply with these laws because reindeer are not interested in uh, whether they are allowed to cross the border on the 14th of May or on the 15th of May, Um, which meant that their their owners were fined if the reindeer um, crossed the border too early. And then, um, so I think there has been a continuous effort to still control this element that was really hard to control for states, which also made the life for reindeer herders sometimes really difficult because... Um well laws and, and 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 legal provisions don't account for sudden changes in the weather or in the snow conditions or things like that. Or there are there are always terms in the Swedish or Norwegian language um, maybe giving some leeway for unprecedented for unforeseen conditions, but they are still too imprecise. And they are still, they don't, the language, I think the Norwegian and the Swedish language lack um, the richness of detail and nuance that, for example, Sami languages have when it comes to um, weather and grazing conditions and um, the different types of reindeer and so on. So um, I think this is a really interesting thing to look at. Um, how, how do states deal with something that, um, from the state's perspective, might be a destabilizing condition. And what role does also language play in when, when states try to come to terms with that?
1: This is really fascinating, and actually wonder, uh, do you think that this kind of a state behavior to control the mobility of reindeers? and not knowing how it actually works, do you think that it's part of the bigger um, colonial system that is still pretty much prevalent all over the world?
2: I think it's, yeah, for sure it has to do with that or it has connections to that. Um, but I also think that um, it also has a lot to do with states' efforts to make things predictable and um foreseeable and because this helps to create a stability which in turn is necessary for the state to be in charge and in control yes there there is this this connection to colonial dominance and and um the state's perceived nece- uh, necessity of 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 control but i mean ranger husbandry is a great example of how where where limits there are limits to that and um This cross-border reindeer husbandry between Norway and Sweden is one example. And I think another really interesting case is uh, World War II, because uh, for most people, the border between uh, Sweden and Norway was closed during the time because Norway was occupied and Sweden was uh, neutral, although that can be contested. but Swedish reindeer herders were still able to reach their summer grazing areas in Norway. It was not as easy as before, and they were not able to access all the areas, but they were the only people and animals, or human animals um, that could still um, cross borders, and to whom a lot of the limitations that were in, pla- in place didn't apply. So I think, yeah, looking at the efforts to control. And um, colonial modes of domination also always show the limitations to these mechanisms and where they just, uh, where the
1: control cannot be upheld. Thank you. I really find it so interesting that talking about reindeers and the perceptions of reindeers, uh, one can go from um, seeing the reindeer as a stumbling block on the way to modern development in Sweden, like as, as the sort of a last frontier <laughs> uh, towards the um, establishment of uh, this modernity in the north towards this like flexible understanding and flexible cooperation between actors, which makes it more mobile and perhaps perhaps <laughs> more sensitive. Yes, but I think um...
2: One should also keep in mind that there's also, uh, of course, a great frustration um, for reindeer herding communities uh, with regard to the state's, um, I, I don't know if inertia might be the the, the best word. I mean, it, it takes incredibly long time to adjust to new situations. And there is, of course, um, still a lot of inflexibility when it comes to the governance of reindeer husbandry. Um, so I think there is a lot of new collaborations and initiatives, especially also between researchers and reindeer herders. But when it comes to legal changes or um, shaping new, new spaces um, for, for a new way of governing reindeer husbandry, that is still extremely challenging and extremely slow.
0: I agree with you but I find it fascinating. I'm just trying to make sense of the contradictions of the reindeer as a tool of colonization but also as a mean for decolonization and for more sovereignty but also the reindeer as an agent itself as as a being as something that's not only a, an object of uh, of human construction, but also uh, also an agent uh, itself.
1: Uh, I actually um, think that your uh, struggle with um, trying to make sense uh, out of all these contradictions, I mean, it's something that is uh, really prevalent nowadays with the whole discourse about the rights of nature and the rights of certain rivers, certain animals, and how it's been discussed, I don't know, in... in, um, legal terms, or in other terms, historical terms, perhaps this is something that uh, still needs to be developed. I I don't know, Karina, what do you you think about that? I think that's a really interesting
2: uh, point, because I have never come across research that discusses the reindeer itself as a rights holder, for example. I think... um, this is probably coming soon because yeah i mean in the in the context of I think New Zealand and maybe even Australia there's um a river has been recognized as as a legal person or as a rights holder at least, and um so far, the reindeer has always been discussed as something that has to be useful in order to have the right to exist, useful to to humans or um to the environment, uh, to biodiversity, it has always had this uh, utilitarian aspect to it. And so I think it would be interesting to explore more, what if just the, resor- uh, the, the reindeer living in the environment is already enough, or that qualifies it as an indispensable resource. Uh, without necessarily having to serve human purposes and human ends, because everything is so focused on how can something be useful to humans. And maybe there's something beyond that uh, that we should look at.
0: Definitely. And this is a call for future research uh, from all the researchers out there who want to take on this endeavor. Uh, But I think on this note, uh, this is a good uh, point to where we can conclude. And uh, both Liben and myself want to thank you so much for for coming to the podcast and having such a wonderful discussion uh, with us today. And perhaps
1: the last question um, for our young researchers out there, what would be your tips, your suggestions to have along their pathway?
2: Oh my God, there would be so many. Um, <laughs> I think now we have talked a lot about um, the, the research that happened once I was admitted as a PhD student um, at KTH, but I should also mention that I have been rejected multiple times before I got this PhD position. And I think, especially if you are a bachelor or master student and you consider applying for PhD positions, um, it's it's normal to be rejected several times until you... Are offered a position um, because this also it really requires a quite big leap of faith for the supervisors because they, uh, they commit to having you multi- several years and um, they cannot know if, if how it works and, uh, or if it works out the way they, they, they want. Um, but uh, don't be deterred and if, if you know if there are rejection letters, just keep on trying and I think it's important to contact. The researcher or research group that you would like to work with and establish a contact and talk about your idea. Because I think this is really important to see how other people can get excited about your research. Because if it's just in your mind, um, there's also all this self-doubt or um, maybe this imposter syndrome of, ah, this is not good enough. It will not, it cannot materialize. But then when you talk to a more senior researcher who also sees the potential of your idea, this is, I think, when you can actually gain the momentum and, and uh, work with a pro- and and develop a proposal that can actually lead to a PhD position. So I think it's this: uh, keep trying if 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 you think it's worth it and if you have an idea and reach out to someone because this can also sometimes be hard as a master student who just finished their studies uh, to get in touch with a professor uh, who is always busy. But I think it's really worth. Uh, doing that
1: thank you so much (laughs) that was a great talk thank you
0: thanks a lot